Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, where we will bring you some of the most interesting interviews and features from the world of tech. Visit irishtechnews.ie and check out our podcast section to discover all of our previous episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter at irish underscore tech news and on Facebook at facebook.com slash irish tech news. Thanks and enjoy the listening. Okay, so today on the podcast, uh, we have somebody uh, who the first book of theirs I read was a long time ago, One River, and obviously he's been very active, traveled very widely, and uh, has also recently got a new book out, which we will discuss and we recently reviewed. So uh, first up, who do I have the pleasure of talking to today? Wade Davis. Cool. And um, so uh, as I alluded to, we've just reviewed your book uh, about the Magdalena River uh, in Colombia. Um, for those who don't know you, how would you describe what it is that you do? Because, uh, I mean, I guess I was thinking is it's uh, the one river is kind of um, ethnobotany. But I mean, are you an ethnobotanist? What what are you? What do you do? Well, Simon, I think, you know, you, you to me, a vocation is just a lens through which you see the world and only for a period of time. I think of myself largely as a kind of an Irish storyteller, you know, that, and I use various media to tell the stories. I've written 23 books, I've made 40 films, I give 60 speeches a year, I, you know, I, I use, you know, podcasts, whatever. Really, my, my mission, I'm an anthropologist primarily. I mean, I certainly worked for six years as a botanical explorer in the Amazon. I found botany was the perfect conduit to culture, living amongst indigenous people in the Northwest Amazon. But when I lived with the Inuit in the Arctic, I became a hunter because the conduit to that society is the metaphor of the hunt. So you find your way in. You know, whenever you arrive um, as a visitor, as an outsider, you have to find that gesture that breaks down that inherent barrier um, and, and transforms you from an outsider into a, a guest. And it's never bravado. It's always empathy and love. And it's always finding that kind of um, point of entry uh, self-deprecating humor, a willingness to sleep where you're asked to sleep or eat what's put in front of you, um, kindness, decency, honor, the same kind of thing that would make me welcome at your home in Dublin, you know, good manners. And uh, uh, But my mission as an anthropologist is really driven by by the, the historic mission of anthropology, which was to make the world safe for human differences. Um, you know, anthropology is the antidote to nativism. It's the antidote to um, to uh, hatred. Uh, anthropology is all about the obvious suggestion that every culture has something to say and each deserves to be heard, just as none has a monopoly on the route to the divine. You know, I, I was very fortunate to attend um, Harvard University and fall into the orbit of two extraordinary men, uh, David Mayray Lewis, who was a great Americanist, a social anthropologist, who always believed that activism was a key part of our mandate. He founded Cultural Survival, the human rights organization. And I also fell into the orbit, of course, of the legendary botanical explorer, Richard Evans Schultes, who spoke of the knowledge of indigenous people when it came to the botanical realm, who was one of the first to speak about the threat to the Amazon. And I realized at a very early age that the same threat that was consuming biological diversity was also consuming or threatening the cultural exhaustion of, of societies. You know, uh, there was a very wonderful uh, moment at Harvard in 1979, um, Simon, when the Dalai Lama 
completed his first ever tour of America. And he was speaking that night at a place called Sanders Theater. And right across the street, E.O. Wilson, the legendary biologist, probably the greatest mm -hmm. biologist of the century, was introducing a man called Norman Myers, who had just written a book called The Sinking Ark, uh, which was one of the first books to anticipate the biodiversity crisis. And naturally, all the kids and faculty were across the way listening to His Holiness. And Ed Wilson, who is as kind and decent a man as you will ever meet, a wonderful human being, nevertheless, and I quote, said to Myers publicly in attempting to apologize for the sparse audience in that hall, he said, you know, if Harvard students, you know, if even Harvard students can't get their priorities right, and they'd rather be across the way listening to that religious kook, you know how far we've got to go to educate the public at large. And that was indicative of a chasm that existed then between the biologists who saw people, particularly indigenous people, as part of the problem, and of course the anthropologists who saw the biologists as being both misanthropic and elitist. And I, I promise you, Simon, I was the only student running back and forth that night between the two lectures. <laughs> Look, I mean, and I guess uh, of all the people that, I mean, the Dalai Lama would be somebody who'd have a very uh, empathetic view of our place within where we live as well. So, yeah, that's that, that, that's a very interesting uh, story. Of course, he also, by definition, was there as a political figure uh, speaking for the, um, the the his own civilization, which was deeply under threat as it is under threat to this day. You know, I mean, one of the, um, uh, you know, haunting statistics of our time is the fact that of the 7,000 languages spoken today, uh, fully half aren't being taught to children. So we're living through an era where literally half of humanity's intellectual, social, ecological, spiritual knowledge is at risk. And this doesn't have to happen. These, these societies are not destined to fade away. They're not vestigial. They're not failed attempts at being modern, failed attempts at keeping up. In every case, these are dynamic living peoples being driven out of existence by identifiable forces. And of course, if human beings um, are the agents of cultural destruction. We can be the facilitators of cultural survival. And the question becomes, what do you do about it? You know, if you're a biologist and you identify an area of high species endemism, you can create a protected area, but you can't make a rainforest park of the mind. You can't freeze people in time. I mean, one preserves jam, not culture. And so the question is, how do you do that? When I was recruited to the National Geographic uh, in 2000 as their cultural anthropologist, you know, as part of a conservation mission, you know, we recognize that politicians follow, they never lead, that polemics are never persuasive, but storytellers can change the world. And so we felt that the best thing we could do to get across this idea, you know, that, that, that um, you know, the, the other peoples of the world um, aren't failed attempts at being modern. Every, each is a unique answer to a fundamental question. What does it mean be human and alive. And when they answer those questions, they do so in the multiple voices of humanity. And so what we did is we took our global audience um, uh, of the National Geographic to places in what I was calling the ethnosphere, like the biosphere, the kind of the cultural web of life, where the beliefs and practices were so dazzling that you couldn't help but come away with a new understanding of the contribution 
of all the voices of humanity. So, you know, we sailed with the Polynesian voyagers who can sense the presence of distant atolls of islands just by watching the reverberation of waves across the sacred canoe. You know, if you took all of the genius that allowed us to put a man in the moon and applied it to an understanding of the ocean, what you would get is Polynesia. We went to the mountains of Tibet to do films on the Buddhist science of the mind. Again, as a Lama said to me once in Tibet, you know, we don't believe that you went to the moon, but you did. You may not believe that we achieve enlightenment in one lifetime, but we do. You know, in other words, we went to the Arctic to see what it meant for an entire civilization to forge its life by the cold. You know, not to fear the cold, but to take advantage of it. And we went to the mountains of Peru to ask, what does it mean when a people really believe that the land is alive, uh, resilient, responsive to the human desire, a kind of a sacred geography based on reciprocity, such that a mountain isn't just a pile of rock ready to be mined, but it's in fact the abode of a deity that will direct your destiny. How does that change the ecological footprint of a people? And at the end of the day, Simon, um, in a sense, when you ask me why does it matter that these voices are heard, I would say two words, climate change. Not to suggest that we go back to some pre-industrial past or that any human population or society be kept from the genius of modernity, but rather to suggest the very existence of these other ways of thinking, other ways of being, other ways of living on the planet puts a lie to those of us in our own Western tradition who say that we cannot change, as we all know, we must change the fundamental way in which we inhabit this planet. Mm -hmm. So, so I guess then uh, th that helps to identify as anthropology as a way of seeing other cultures and therefore, like you say, uh, deprogramming the it can only be this way and there isn't another way. Um, so, if 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 you was if you were starting out now, and I guess like similarly, like so, I was in Costa Rica for a year in in ninety two, and and I and I do wonder how much of what I saw and experienced is still there. And as you're describing with the loss of languages, uh, we have lost a lot. Um, so therefore, is 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 anthropology is still very important, but it has does it have it seems to have many less uh sources of information to learn from uh, how do we deal with this challenge well it's never been more important because we still have time i mean these cultures are are still with us and that's in a sense the great miracle um uh, you know cultural myopia is has been the curse of humanity since the dawn of consciousness you know the you know when herodotus came back from his travels uh, plato wanted him banned from athens for the audacity of suggesting that something interesting was going on over there in that place called Persia. And, you know, if you think of the word barbarian, it comes from the Greek word barbarous, one who babbles. If you didn't speak Greek, you didn't exist. But the Aztec had the same notion in their language in the Watl. And most native names translate of tribal names as the, the people, the implication being that, the, you know, the blokes over the hill are savages. And, 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 and mm -hmm. in, in all cultural pluralistic world, we just can't afford that kind of um, myopia. And, and the goal isn't to freeze people in time, it's to ask ourselves, what kind of world do we want to live in? And how do we find a way to maintain the multiple voices of humanity as part of our collective repertoire, um, uh, allowing them at the same time to engage, engage in everything that is brilliant about modernity, and we can do that as long as we don't make that engagement contingent on them um, giving up who they are. And so that is, in a sense, 
a central challenge. And uh, it's not a trivial challenge, but it's one that we absolutely um, can confront and uh, over which we can triumph. Yes, yes, uh, uh, I hope so, and I would agree. Um, through through your books, um, you uh, very much, as you've mentioned, celebrate uh, uh, Richard Schultes and how he mentored and encouraged you and had the faith to say, yeah, just go do it. And 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 watching a lot of your talks in preparation for the interview, uh, I feel that you uh, have taken on the idea that you need to mentor and pay it forwards for others in the way that it was done for you. Would that be a fair observation? Oh, absolutely, Simon. That's why at the age of 59, I accepted the invitation to become a, a university professor. Um, you know, Schultes, in his wisdom, understood that the teacher, uh, the student was as important as a teacher in the lineage of knowledge. And uh, I think there comes a time in life when that becomes your 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 duty. You know, we 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 have this um, um, misconception for young people that life is linear, that you go from A to B to C. If you skip D and E, you don't get to the rest of the alphabet. Well, that's nonsensical to anyone who's lived a rich life. Life isn't linear at all. It's it's completely made up of these serendipitous moments when you have a choice. And as Joseph Campbell said, you have to cultivate an inner compass so that you follow your own bliss in those moments. Uh, you know, I always say to young people that, you know, pessimism is an indulgence, despair, an insult to the imagination, orthodoxy, the enemy of invention. Do what needs to be done and then ask whether it was possible, let alone permissible. Um, you know, if you put yourself in the way of opportunities, you suddenly find yourself, uh, uh, where there's no choice but success, you find yourself capable of doing things that would have seemed beyond your reach a few short weeks or months before. Jim Whitaker, the first American to summit Everest, is a great friend of mine, and, and Jim famously said that if you're not living on the edge when you're young, you're taking up too much space. And the, the goal in life is to jump off the cliffs, not be afraid of the cliffs. And when you jump off the cliffs, the great message of all, all the wisdom keepers and all the sages and all the elders of the world has always been, you jump off the cliff and you don't land on rocks. You land on a feather bed. The world doesn't exist to beat you down. It exists to lift you up. And the key thing is to have the courage to get into the arena and see where it takes you. And so when I was young, I was very fortunate that maybe because of the era in which I grew up, I only had one word in my vocabulary for any new experience, and that was yes. And I didn't necessarily know what I wanted to do, uh, but I knew, uh, I knew that I was, I, I was viscerally incapable of compromising. And because of that, I was able to forge a unique life. And that, that is the greatest challenge in life. You know, bitterness always comes, Simon, to those in old age who look back on a life of decisions imposed upon them, compromises made, compromises made by them. The greatest creative challenge of one's life is to become the architect of that life. And if you are the architect of your own existence, then you cannot be bitter because you own all of your choices. And you may not have always made the right choice, but you own that choice. And that is really... I think the 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 goal of um, of, um, of 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 a good life, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and like you say, something positive to pass on. Um, Louis de Bernier, who wrote Captain Coralie's Mandolin, had a couple of early novels, maybe two or three, that were set in Colombia. 
and and obviously Colombia is a fantastic place and yet had a lot of very tough things happening and so for you I mean you, you kind of almost began by going to Colombia and Magdalena very much acknowledges both that you were there and the joy of coming back but equally so, some very tough things happened there over the over the last three or four decades too so 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 was that tough to kind of both celebrate all the good stuff and and not just be dragged you know like it, it, it might, I mean so many brutal things happened there as well so was it hard to to hold those two things together no not at all i mean you know storytellers um hemingway said that a couple of things wonderful he, he many things wonderful but one of them he said anyone who says that writing is easy is either a a, a a bad writer or a liar and 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 he said the essence of storytelling is to have something to say that the world needs to hear and i i've always felt in all of my books and there's a constant refrain in, amongst reviewers where every time I do a new book, the reviews begin, this is a big departure for Wade Davis. And after 23 books, you'd think they'd get it. That, of course, <laughs> part of the pattern. You know, I feel you need to be, it is hard to write a book, and, I, and it takes time. I mean, I've written books in three months, but I've written books in 12 years. Um, Magdalena took five years to do the research. You know, I, I, I returned again and again to this extraordinary um, river of life in Colombia, you know, the, the, the fountain of, the, of culture, the corridor of commerce, the, the valley in which 80% of Colombians live, the valley that generates 80% of its economy. You know, Colombia ex can only exist as a country because of the river. The river, the, the, in a way, the nation is a gift of the river. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I, 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 one of the one of the roles of the writer is to is to explain with empathy. And in the book, I don't shy away from the nightmare that Columbia has endured, but I also make the point that the elements of the nightmare are one small element of a rich fabric which in which the essence of the country is something quite different. You know, magical realism is sometimes um, uh, seen as Columbia's great gift to Latin American literature, but Gabo or, uh, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez was a journalist. He was an observer, a functioning journalist all of his life. He just happened to live in a land where heaven and earth converge on a regular basis to reveal glimpses of the divine. Colombia is not a land of violence. It's a place of colores y cariño, love and colors, which has managed to endure this nightmare precisely because of the character of the people, which is itself informed by a deep spirit of place. In the same way that Ireland has been able to endure so much because of the resonance of the landscape, you know? And we must remember that, that yes, it's true that over a 50-year war in Colombia that has seen 260,000 dead, uh, 7 million internally displaced, 100,000 uh, disappeared, at no point in a nation of 50 million people were the combatants in number on all three sides of the conflict, the right-wing paramilitaries, the leftist guerrillas, be it the M19, the ELNA, or the FARC, never numbered, together with the army on the third leg of the conflict, um, never numbered more than 250,000, maybe 300,000, in a country of 50 million. So the vast majority of Colombians were innocent victims caught in the vice of war, in the same sense that most Colombians have never seen, let alone used cocaine. And ultimate responsibility for Colombia's agonies lies with those who consume cocaine. I mean, can you imagine how the Americans would feel about their war on drugs 
If Canada, for example, had patterns of consumption of cocaine in bars and boardrooms across our country, laws that did nothing to inhibit the trade in any meaningful way, but laws that were sufficiently draconian to make sure that a vital black market uh, would would um, be possible, such that 85 million Americans were forced out of their homes and forced out of their country. Well, that's what happened in Colombia. And the entire war would not have lasted a day without the consumption of cocaine. At the height of Escobar's empire, he was putting 80 tons of cocaine into the United States every uh, month, uh, generating $17 million a day. The accountants back in Medellin budgeted every week $1,000 just to buy elastic bands, just to wrap the illicit cash. In the last year before the peace agreement was signed in Colombia, the FARC, down to 6,000 cadre, mostly kids in search of good meals, uh, nevertheless generated $600 million of, uh, of uh, uh, U.S. dollars uh, through extortion and drug trafficking. Well, I needn't tell an Irishman what that kind of money does in the hands of a few terrorists. Um, the, 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 you, get, you give me $600 million in the Beverly Hills Boy Scouts, and I can wreak havoc in Southern California. And the point, the point is that, that if it wasn't for the illicit market in cocaine, Columbia's agonies would never have unfolded. And the incredible thing is, despite all of this, Columbia has managed to maintain civil society and democracy, green its cities, create millions of acres of national parks, seek restitution with indigenous people, unlike any country in the Americas, and pave the way for an economic renaissance um, as literally hundreds and hundreds of young kids forced to flee the violence are now coming home with skill sets uh, secured in every conceivable endeavor in all the capitals of the world, laying the groundwork for a kind of economic and cultural renaissance unlike anything ever seen in Latin America. The whole world may be falling apart, but Colombia is falling together. Yeah, look, I mean, and, and as you say, it, 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 I guess it, much like with Faulkner, William Faulkner talking about, you know, the, the part is too recent to speak about the past. Like you say, the, the, this could be the starting point or, of some very positive things for Colombia. So, yeah, I, I think, like you say, it's, it's a very dynamic process. Um, so the only, you, the you only could, answer. The only danger in going to Colombia these days, Simon, is a distinct possibility you'll never want to come home. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, you know, it, it's, it, it is biologically, geographically, ecologically, by far and away, the most beautiful and uh, rich country on the planet. Um, there is no place in Colombia more than a day removed from every known ecological niche to be to have been documented by science. Um, uh, you, you know, the, the, uh, I'll give you, you know, <laughs> I was with an old guy, uh, Morita de los Manatees, I called him, and he was an old, uh, farmer, uh, who just fell in love with manatees, you know, and he became like an avatar of the creatures and, um, he would feed them when there were periods of drought, he would look after them, he would find them, he would name them. And he had that kind of power that allowed him to defy the FARC, defy the, paramilitaries become a real leader of his, his community and he always worked with the school kids and around a little wetland uh, one day he was walking with me and uh, Morita said you know I found 75 species of butterflies 
uh, we found documented just around this little pond. And I said, Jesus, man, that's amazing because that's about a third of the butterflies we have all in, in all of Canada, second biggest country on the planet. And then he said to me in Spanish, he said, yes, sí, hermano, pero la cosa es que tiene que entender que en Colombia una, una mariposa es solamente un flor que puede volar. Por eso tenemos tanto. And what he was saying to me is, brother, you have to understand, though, it's really different because in Colombia, you see, a butterfly is just a flower that's learned how to fly. That's why we have so many. And that's kind of a wonderful, in a way, there's a, there's, there is a kind of a link between Ireland and Colombia. Maybe that's why I love both countries so much. Um, you know, that, that, that sense of magic that, you know, you know how when you're in Ireland, there's that feeling, at least I have it as a Canadian of Irish descent. And now, mercifully, I've also, you know, I, I am an Irish citizen because of all my grandparents. And, um, uh, but I also was made an honorary Colombian citizen um, by President Juan Manuel Santos. And um, that, that sense in Ireland that, that magic can happen in any moment, that you can walk around a corner, you can walk into a pub, you can, you can be in a farmer's field, you can be in a woodland, you can be in the sea on the beach and and it's like the landscape is alive it's it's as if uh, uh there's spirits beneath the stones or something like that and columbia has that quality you know it's you know you know it it, it um um you know your magic is waiting to be born at any moment in columbia yeah look uh and like you say you know so columbia you have the you know garcia marquez and and very much that articulation of magical realism and uh, i would definitely agree with you that, that, that with ireland there are similarities that is it, it's not solely uh, live to work and uh, you know people share that appreciation of taking time and talking to people and you know looking up and not not just working you know excessively because that's not just what we're here for so yeah look i mean <laughs> And you answered my question about the passport, so that's that's all good too. Um, um, you, you've you've done a few recent opinion pieces about uh, the United States uh, as they are potentially on a time of cusp uh, on on a cusp of change. I mean, and so obviously, like like Asia is the coming uh, area for 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 better and worse, as as you have explained. Um, like obviously North America and the US is not going to disappear, but but it, you would very much feel there's a recalibration of, of its place in the world. Would that be a fair observation? Well, yeah, I mean, you refer, I, you know, you're, you're referring to a piece I think that I wrote in Rolling Stone in the mm -hmm. summer and uh, it came out and, and, and quite unexpectedly, you know, had a huge impact. Uh, it was read by 5 million people on the Rolling Stone site. Uh, it generated 362 million social media impressions. It was the um, most read long piece form of uh, essay uh, it, it, visitations to my Wikipedia site. I was told by a friend soared from 150 a day to 4,000. Um, it just and, and what it did is it looked at COVID not as a medical or a, a issue of public health or morbidity or mortality, but really through the lens of culture as, an, as the anthropologist that I am. And it started, and, and actually it was the Irish Times who first um, said this very profoundly. Um, you know, a reporter um, remarked that over the course of the last um, uh, uh, 60 years since World War II, there have been many emotions expressed about the United States, um, but pity has not been one of them until now. And as people 
watched healthcare workers lining up to await um, emergency airlifts of basic medical supplies from China. It was like the hinge of history opened the Asian century. Um, you know, America suddenly uh, found itself um, with, at the time I wrote the piece, just 2,000 dying a day, which now seems small compared to the mortality figures of today, twice that. Um, mm -hmm. But nevertheless, living in, in, a, in a failed state led by a dysfunctional government at the helm of which was a, a, a bone spur president, a buffoon of an individual, a grifter on the make, um, advocating the use of disinfectants to treat a, a serious medical uh, affliction that intellectually he could not begin to understand. Um, and, and what I did in that piece was try to sort of trace what had happened to America, you know, the country that literally had become the arsenal of democracy, a country that on the eve of World War II was demilitarized. I mean, Portugal and Bulgaria both had larger armies in 1940 than America. And yet within three years, 18 million people were in uniform. The industrial might of America saved civilization, that together with Russian blood. I mean, you know, we, we, we spat out liberty ships by the, by the hour. Uh, B-17s that had 1.5 million parts by the hour. Uh, it's, it, sum it up with one statistic. For every five pounds of equipment, the Japanese Empire of the Sun per capita got to a frontline soldier. America got two tons across sea lines that were 13,000 kilometers across, you know. And, and in the wake of the war, uh, with Europe in ashes and Asia prostrate, American economic dominance was such that it controlled, generated half the world's economy, made 90% of the world's cars. And that allowed for a kind of a treaty between labor and capital. It gave us the middle class and gave us the weekend. You know, a man with a, a factory job could, could um, support a family, buy a car, buy a house, put his kids through good schools. But that contract was broken by globalization, which every working man and woman knows is just a fluffed up word for capital on the prowl in search of cheaper sources of labor. And as that contract was broken, things began to fall apart. You know, the CEO of the 1950s uh, maybe had a salary 20 times that of the salaried person on his staff. Now that would be 500 times. The the marginal tax rates in the 1950s were 90%. That doesn't mean the rich all paid 90%, but the message was there. Today, the top 1% of Americans control $30 trillion of assets. The lower half have more debt than assets. The three richest Americans control more wealth than the poorest 160 million of their citizens. And, and that kind of inequity is simply not sustainable and and with the collapse of the foundations of the american economy the working man in the factory came all kinds of social pathologies today the greatest source of mortality for americans under 50 is the abuse of opioid drugs legally mm. prescribed by former americans think they're happy they consume two-thirds of the world's anti-depressant uh, drugs divorce rates are what they are uh, only 6% of American homes have grandparents and grandchildren beneath the same roofs. The average American youth by 18 has spent three years watching a video camera or a screen contributing to an obesity epidemic that the Joint Chiefs of Staff have called a national security crisis. A country that celebrated education uh, and, and, and a free press as foundational stones of its democracy now finds itself ranked 45th when it comes to press freedom 
in the world, and I can name you 15 American cities that do not graduate more than 50% of the high school senior classes, despite lowering uh, every, you know, expectations with every year. Uh, you know, a country that sees freedom as the right to own a personal arsenal of weaponry on D-Day, June 6, 1944, uh, roughly 4,400 Americans died assaulting Hitler's Europe. By April of 2019, in the first four months of that year, more Americans had killed each other than died at the beaches of Normandy. You know, we 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 uh, we we believe that a person's right to own guns trumps the safety of of, of children. Uh, you know, a country that uh, once you know led the world in medical innovation um, um, can't manage to have in hand medical supplies that um, are fundamental to the treatment of this ailment. You know, a, a country where people. Uh, believe that truth is relative, that truth is what you perceive it to be, that truth can be invented, uh, that somehow you can defy uh, medical uh, advice and and congregate on beaches or in conventions, thinking that that's a sign of strength when it in fact is a demonstration of the weakness of the people that lack the stoicism to endure the pandemic or the fortitude to defeat it. When a country turns its back on its own myth, it's an act of treason. You know, when the huddled masses no longer are welcome on the shores of America, when walls go up across the the boundaries of the American Southwest, you know, when desperate mothers escaping the carnage created by the cocaine trade, by the American interventions under Reagan in the 1980s, find themselves at the gates of of of, um, uh, of the American border on the northern frontier of Mexico and are, aren't just turned away, they're seized, their children are taken from them. There are hundreds of kids that even today the U.S. government does not know, do, doesn't know where the parents are. Now contrast that back to Colombia, a country that's been blackened with, with, uh, with uh, cliches um, over the last years. Colombia has quietly, without fanfare, absorbed 1.8 million Venezuelans, and they haven't been torn apart. They've been welcomed, they've been housed, they've been fed, they've been put in schools, and they've been given medical care at a time when Colombia needs every penny it has to deal with the economic stipulations of a precarious peace process. So, I mean, part of what that article did, Simon, I was trying, it's not an anti-American article by any means. It, it was trying to shine a mirror in the face of Americans. You know, it's like an intervention with a family member. You've got to show them how far they've fallen before they realize. And that's the first step of the path of, re, uh, of rehabilitation. And I, I ended that piece with a bit of an allegory or a fable, trying to give Americans a sense of what it meant, in fact, to live in a country like Ireland or Canada, a social democracy. And social democracies are not, as the Americans think, communism light. They're just dynamic entrepreneurial capitalist economies which just focus the financial attention on all members of the society. You know, on, on, on last summer, I remember July 30th, America announced nearly 60,000 new cases of COVID. Now those numbers seem small, but at the time they were extraordinarily large. And, and at that very day, in all of our hospitals in British Columbia, where I live, 
there were only five cases of COVID. Now we're an Asian city, we're a metropolitan population, three hours up the road from Seattle where the pandemic landed in North America, dozens of flights coming in every day from the Far East. And yet, so what was going on here? And even to this day, Canada now, we've had outbreaks. We've had maybe 600,000 in total cases of COVID, but that's trivial compared to what the United States right next door to us um, uh, has had. You know, the joke in Canada is that to live in Canada is like living above a meth lab. And uh, when we talk about building walls, we always say that we just wish Trump had focused on his northern border instead of his southern border. We could use a wall. We've shut down the border of the United States now for many, many months. The longest traditionally undefended open border in the history of humanity. And we've been forced to shut it down because of the dysfunction of the United States. And, and you know, and I, a way I try to explain that is... When you go to get your groceries in the United States at a, a, the big chain, which is called Safeway, uh, there's a kind of a social, economic, racial, educational chasm between you and the checkout clerk that's unbridgeable. And you don't feel that as Safeway in Canada. And, and the reason is very simple. In Canada, you know that the clerk is getting a decent wage because of the unions. And in Canada, the clerk knows that you know that probably your kids go to the same public schools, which aren't funded by property taxes, which benefit the children of the wealthy, but by block grants from the um, from the state um, that give every kid, at least ideally, an equal chance in life. And thirdly, and most importantly, you know that they know that you know that if their kids get sick, they'll get exactly the same medical care, not just of your kids, but of the prime minister's kids. And this is what the Americans don't understand about universal health care. It's not about medicine. It's not about health care. It's about social solidarity. You know, in Canada, you would never politically run against Ottawa. That's where we send our representatives. It would be a psychotic act. You would never see a politician wrap themselves in the flag. We didn't even have one until 1965. Uh, you know, ours is a much more muted um, 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 uh, patriotism based on solidarity, consilience, reciprocity. You know, we we don't see that, um, you know, uh, uh, the wealth of a nation being simply the currency accumulated by the lucky few, but the strength of social relations and the bonds of reciprocity that join us all in some a greater and 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 common purpose. Our healthcare system uh, is geared towards the collective, not the individual, and certainly not the private investor who views every hospital bed as if a rental property. And I'll 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 share one really moving example of that. Is that you know, Simon, when my mother was 85, um, living alone in an apartment in the provincial capital, she got a headache at 11 o'clock in the morning. By two o'clock that afternoon, she was being prepped for serious neurosurgery. And by the time my sister and I got to the intensive care unit, um, she was, you know, on the edge of death. And right beside us, there was a little girl from Manitoba who had had the same medical condition, whose life that day had also been saved by the same immigrant Indo-Canadian um, um, physician, surgeon, a neurosurgeon of incredible dexterity and grace, but for us, a kind of bodhisattva who had saved the life of our loved ones. And that little girl was Mennonite, and she was surrounded by all of her farm family from, from, from Manitoba. And it struck my sister very moving because 
Karen is a lawyer and I've done well, we could have paid for that service. But in another country, that family might have been facing a choice between the well-being of their family and the survival of their daughter. And as in Ireland, we say that that is a choice that no citizen should have to make in a civilized country. Now, the fanciest hotel in Victoria has a policy that any Canadian with a relative in an intensive care unit gets a free room for the night. So that evening, as the nurses kicked us out and uh, uh, we all poured back down to the hotel, I invited them all to the bar. Now, Mennonites don't drink, so I bought them tea or coffee or whatever they, I don't think they drink coffee. I think milk, whatever they wanted, you know, my sister had a glass of wine, I had a bottle of beer, whatever it was. But then, Simon, we did a toast. And we didn't toast our loved ones who had survived that day, much as they were in our hearts. And we didn't even toast that incredible gift to Canada, that immigrant doctor from Delhi who had saved their lives. We toasted our country because it was our country that had brought us together in that very special moment. Two families from the opposite ends of every conceivable spectrum educational, financial, religious, geographic. But in that moment, we were kind of as one beneath the grace of this wonderful country of ours, which is Canada, which is no perfect place, but it's a bloody nice place to be. And, and we realize that that is the essence of our patriotism, a patriotism that's based not on chauvinistic camp and not on, on demeaning people, not on white supremacy, but rather on a deep sense that we live in a land where we have to get along, where, where you know, there's a great, a great um, you know, Jan Morris, a great travel writer, recently passed away. And Jan um, famously said that in Vancouver, you could drown of niceness. And what Jan didn't understand is she had bumped into a Canadian in the streets of Vancouver. And of course, the Canadian said, I'm sorry. And Jan couldn't figure out why the Canadian would apologize to her because she had whacked him. But what Jan didn't understand is that the phrase, I'm sorry, in Canada is not an apology. It's a mantra. It's like a way of saying, look, we live in this godforsaken country where the winter you know, hovers in our imagination. For most of our history, there are more um, you know, lakes than people. Our notion of a neighbor is someone who lives, lives within 50 miles. Uh, you didn't want to hit me. I didn't want to be whacked by you. And so I'm saying, I'm sorry, but you're not apologizing to the other. You're apologizing for the moment of awkwardness that might disrupt the solidarity of the nation. It, it's, it's that deep and subtle. Um, and, and, and that's what Canada is all about. And that when I, is what I'm afraid the United States has unfortunately never been about. Yeah, look, I mean, and so therefore, um, from from Colombia, Ireland, Canada, and in contrast to the US, uh, I, I think it's 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 fascinating and it's really insightful because basically you're applying an anthropolo anthropologist perspective on, you know, why do people do things differently and what's the result of it. So it it's, it's it, it makes sense to make these observations and 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 it makes us wiser for it. Um, look, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Uh, what, what do you plan to write about next? You know. Uh, is there anything else left that you'd like to cover? Well, I, 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 you know, I've kind of rethought that piece in Rolling Stone because I sort of was presenting um, all of this as if, you know, this is sort of an anomalous moment in American history or, or a moment of acute decline that people had to be um, um, aware of um, and, and worried about. But as I've been doing a tremendous amount of research since August, doing a great deal of reading in American history, 
I've come to kind of the haunting conclusion that, in fact, this is simply the story of America, and race is the story of America. And until America, if it ever can, comes to terms with its original sin, uh, it's not clear that it will find a, a path forward. It's it's really tragic, but you know, a symbol of that. I've you know, you, and you can find these symbols in all moments in every year of American history. Um, but if you think of George Washington, the father of the nation, the man who could not tell a lie, um, you know, as opposed to this recent one who can't recognize the truth, um, uh, you know, heroic, erect, um, the father of the nation, as I said. But, you know, the one flaw in his incredible character, including his um, charismatic um presentation he was extraordinarily handsome he was taller than most men of his time was his bad teeth he had dentures and the dentures were made up of teeth that had been extracted from the mouths of his own slaves um, without anesthetic just because a master needed some ivory well that to me is a haunting indication of the curse of slavery that has haunted america and it remains the curse of the nation. You know, those that mob that stormed the U.S. Capitol, um, all, for all the talk of sedition and, and uh, um, insurrection, it reminded me more of a kind of a mob at a rock and roll concert. The Capitol Police seemed to be more like security guards trying to kind of man, manage the rabid fans at a U2 concert, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and, and of course, I'm not saying that some of the individuals didn't have terrorist intentions but when you actually looked at the images they sort of unexpectedly got inside the, the capital and began to walk around taking selfies well i can tell you one thing you do not do you do not over, you do not overthrow the u.s military and the u.s government uh with a selfie and and the thing that haunted me was not the the specter of insurrection and sedition as much as the fact that had those people been black and they'd been muslims they would have been mowed down with machine guns right mm -hmm. and they were and 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 that was such a sign of the subtleties of racism in america you know people people would not necessarily see in that um the 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 obvious and the and uh, and the obvious contrast to the way that a legal and and um, and peaceful protesters, um, which comprised ninety five percent of those who participated in the Black Lives Matter marches of last summer, they weren't treated with kid gloves. They were beaten. They were kidnapped. They were tear gassed. They were maced. They were clubbed. They were dragged by their hair. Um, and I say that not as someone from the left or the right. I'm a Canadian observer from afar. But the contrast between the way that the mob stormed the Capitol and literally threatened the heart of government, threatened to steal the documents of the Electoral College, disrupting the most profound moment uh, of, of American democracy, which is always a moment fraught with challenge because it's a transfer of power. Uh, they were treated as if it was a rock and roll concert. And the kids who gathered uh, in the streets to protest the, the death of George Floyd um were treated as if they were true terrorists and beaten and beaten and beaten uh, and then people wondered why 
the protesters became a mob and why the mob became a riot, why the riot ended in looting. It's the same story we've seen going back to the riots in Watts in 1965, you know, or Detroit, where police brutality provokes violence. The violence ends in um, destruction and looting, and then the entire demonstration is colored with the false accusation of of having been nothing but a band of looters and, and marauders when in fact they were gathered for social justice yeah look i mean and, and i know obama was uh, tweeting about this and sharing the the reports that like you say the the re- the the response uh, the violent degree of violence uh, is disproportionate towards uh, protests with uh, black people and towards the left and the right so y- you're right and from george washington from there to now it, it it's a fundamental uh, issue that hasn't been resolved yet so i guess it's a watch that space really but um interesting times you know so it's look look it's great to chat to you it's good to hear your overall take on things and um i guess we'll um look keep an eye out for what you do next then thanks very much simon lovely to be with you thank you thank you for listening to the latest irish tech news podcast you can sign up for more via our email digest which does a weekly summary of all our podcasts or you can follow us on your preferred podcasting platform of choice or follow us on twitter irish underscore tech news or facebook or linkedin or the or the website irishtechnews.ie uh, we will bring you more soon and thanks for listening